welcome to EAU Podcasts. Today we will be discussing RSCC with Professors Jens Bedke and Axel Bex. Thank you both. What's new in the adjuvant treatment of patients with high-risk RCC after radical nephrectomy? Jens, I'll give you the word first. Axel, thanks. Yeah, I, I think we have a fascinating time right now because we got the first approval of an immune checkpoint inhibitor and the adjuvant treatment of renocell carcinoma and uh, that this PD-1 antibody hemorrhizumab filled the gap uh, which we had as a medical need uh, in the adjuvant space of um, clear cell renocell carcinoma. Actually, you know, we, we had the tyrosine kinase inhibitor trials before. Yeah. Uh, what do you think is the improvement between these? Well, basically, we discussed it at the EAU guidelines as well. Um, the, the, uh, in the era of TKI, we had one trial which, from a statistical endpoint, was positive. Um, that uh, was ASTRAC that um, investigated sunitinib as an adjuvant treatment for patients with high-risk kidney cancer. And um, that was FDA approved, but it wasn't approved by EMA. Uh, the reason being simply because the, um, there was no OS signal, uh, no OS difference. Uh, the hazard ratio was met for uh, disease-free survival, but there was um, fairly high toxicity that led to treatment interruptions and uh, early terminations of treatment. And you could see that patients actually who tolerated to be on the drug were the ones who then had the best disease-free survival. But this is exactly the problem. Many patients didn't actually tolerate to be on the drug. And that's different with uh, pembrolizumab. It has a a better side effect spectrum. And there is an early overall survival signal in the trial. We shouldn't overestimate that yet. But I think also as a guideline panel, we have the responsibility to um, not to make things unavailable by our opinion. I think the evidence is actually very much in favor of uh, at least giving a weak recommendation for pembrolizumab. Yes, I think this is what we did. So they had to acknowledge the primary endpoint of disease-free prolongation, which was significantly prolonged by the pembrolizumab treatment, which was given in three-week intervals over one year uh, compared to placebo. And uh, while you mentioned that the overall survival shows a signal, but it's not mature right Mm -hmm. now. So I think this is why we issued a weak recommendation until, let's say, like a conditional recommendation until the overall survival signal is present. But actually, the, the Keynote 564, this trial had different subgroups. And there was one subgroup of um, the M1 NED subgroup, that's 6% of the patient. Yeah, exactly. what, is, what is special about this subgroup? It was the first time that we had a group of after metastasectomy in a phase three setting, which was then treated in an adjuvant space um, with an agent, here with an immune checkpoint inhibitor, is that, uh, well, let's say, problematic? What is there, are there anything which we have to guide for in the clinical setting? Any, well, not to be cautious? Yeah, I, I think we debated it uh, extensively at the guidelines. So first of all, um, metastasectomy is that's also an unmet need. It's not that this is the first trial investigating the subgroup of metastasectomy patients. We had that in the TKI era as well. There were two trials with pazopanib and sorafenib. They were both negative. Um, and in the end, I mean, high-risk disease um, leading to recurrences and having an early recurrence is probably just another dynamic of the same spectrum of the disease, you could argue. But the problem was that um, the, the signal that, is, that might go out from Keynote now is that um, there would be an open invitation to do metastasectomies and then just give them pembrolizumab afterwards. And uh, I personally, and I think also some patients and uh, some, some uh, colleagues in the in the guideline panel shared that 
had difficulties with the inclusion of the group um, to have a recurrence within the first year of surgery. They are normally um, in retrospective prognostic scores of, um, of metastasectomies, uh, those ones who do poorly. So they, they are normally the rapid progressors. And that also shows, in my point of view, in the exploratory subgroup analysis of the DFS. So the hazard ratio of the DFS for the M1 NED group is 0.29, which basically could be interpreted like having given systemic therapy to a systemically progressive group versus having observed it. And I think that's a bit the, the issue. Huh? Yeah, I think we, we just have to be cautious. Yeah. We don't mm-hmm. say don't give it, don't do yeah. it, but be cautious. And uh, if you're in doubt, well, let's do a re-scan after mm-hmm. metastasectomy before you start the adjuvant treatment. I think one, exactly. this is one of the key messages, and, uh, which is what we came out. Well, so any last word? I started. Any last word for you for the adjuvant treatment? What will be in the future? Is there anything on the horizon? Must we be aware that uh, I think what different is, trials? Yeah, I think what is interesting, uh, there are different trials ongoing. They will very soon have their readout. Um, and I think it's important to watch that space, maybe later that year, maybe at uh, GeoASCO or um, early next year. Um, I, I personally will be very intrigued by the combination Um there is a trial that investigated the combination of NEVO and IPI. Um, well, I mean, there, there is the risk of increasing toxicity, but on the other hand, we know that IO monotherapy in the metastatic setting is probably um, inferior to the combination. So I, I'd be very interested in what the results would be. It's a fascinating time, and I think it's worth looking at the guideline because we try to pick up um, the early news and mm-hmm. give a recommendation on that. Yeah. What are the recent advancements in the systemic treatment of advanced RCC? Yeah, I think Jens. Yeah, well, Axel, the, the, we had an interesting time over the last two, three years. Um, and I think it's must look a little bit like a historic view right now. So we left the space of TKI monotherapy and the first-line treatment of metastatic renal cell carcinoma and we definitely have the age of combinations, of IO-based combinations in this era, in this in the space, in the setting. Um, so we recommend the TKI-IO-based combination in the first-line setting, irrespective of the IMDC subgroup from the EAU guidelines. So we recommend axipemolizumab, carbosantinib and nivolumab, and also lenvatinib and pembrolizumab in the first-line setting, irrespective of the IMDC subgroup. In addition, based on the Checkmate 214, Trial results, there's the recommendation for the CTLA-4 antibody ipilimumab plus in combination plus nivolumab, the PD-1 antibody in the IMDC intermediate and poorest subgroup. And the TKIs, which have been, well, let's say, dominating or were the front runner over the last 15 years, uh, they are now an option if the patient cannot tolerate immune checkpoint inhibitors due to one of the other medical reasons. And I think we had no big news from ASCO or ASCO-GU this year. I think the big news were in 2021 and 2020, 2029. And this is what totally changed the landscape. Mm -hmm. But what is important right now is that we um, get a longer follow-up data. So what we know, we know the efficacy, we know the significant improvement of PFS, the improvement objective response rate. We know, of course, also the improvement of overall survival. But well, maybe we must granularize a little bit more to the, to the subgroups and have a closer look on that with a 
longer follow-up, which is definitely needed yeah. right now. But I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm actually quite intrigued by the data that came out. So I think we now have a 60-month uh, observation yeah. for the longest trial that has been under follow-up, which is Checkmate 214. Uh, with uh, ipilimumab and nivolumab. And if you look at the median overall survival of this group, this is basically unheard of before. And um, with a general 10% complete response rate and the progression-free survival subgroups that develop a plateau, I think it will be very, very interesting to see what happens. It, it won't be that we cure uh, many patients, but it's probably... Um, I like to liken it a little bit with this high-dose interleukin-2 uh, era. There were some patients which we this, probably this, cured. This long responders, yeah. yeah. But I mean, the, 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 the checkmate trial results of this long follow-up of mm. six months, they tell us we need this follow-up. This is what yeah. I think, what I've learned. And I mean, it's one-third of the patients which have not progressed after five years. Yeah. So that's a great signal. Yeah. So that's not nothing. That's, that's really great. So... What do you think? How is its story going on? What will we expect in the future? Are there triplets? Any, uh, yeah, there are triplets being investigated. I think it's the COSMIC trial. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, we, first of all, we don't know the results. But um, there is always this specter of having an increased toxicity when you give triplets. And I think the expectations of the um, community would be that if there is an increase in toxicity, you would at least want to have um, a very thorough improvement of your... Um, uh, progression-free survival or overall survival before you would actually go for a recommendation. So that will be the expectation of the outcomes. And if this is not met, even though it might be a positive study, so let's let's assume COSMIC would show very similar hazard ratios to um, the um, combinations, dual combinations, but at the price of a higher toxicity, then I think it, it won't go ahead. Yeah, I think it's, um, we, we must wait, we must see, but mm. it's the first triplet trial where we expect to read out. There are other yeah. triplet trials on the horizon, and I mean, it's tremendous what we have observed during the last years of the increase of PFS and also mm. OS, especially with the IOW. Yeah. What about the second line? Um, well, what is our recommendation for the second line setting? It's difficult. Yeah, currently it's very difficult. I mean, we, we, uh, we do have information from uh, Meteor and other st studies that were done before, um, immune checkpoint inhibitor combination therapy was actually introduced. Um, I think also from TIBO3. Yeah, so, we have but, these subgroups yeah, yeah. from these trials. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's basically expert opinion at that moment. So you would use something that hadn't been used before in that setting. And it's very likely to be a TKI uh, if it was an IO-IO combination. Um, well, what, what is your opinion on non clear cell did we make any progress in the last years? yeah I, I difficult very difficult but just one last word to the second line i think it's also worth reading the guidelines and having mm. a look at that because there are trials ongoing in this setting which mm. will have read out the carbo atizo trial after exactly. io pretreatment yeah. so there is a wind of change once we have the results you're asking about the non-clear cell i mean with the savoir trial we had the first trial um in the, in, the, in the phase three setting, I think, uh, in the non-clear cell, mm. but it's TKI monotherapy-based. And it's difficult. Um, we recommend that um, in the guidelines, but we also have to acknowledge the fact that we have data for doublets, TKI or doublets, in the non-clear cell setting, for example, also for the saccharomatoid subgroup, mm. which show efficacy. The data is not so robust because of the design of the subgroup analysis. It's not phase three. Um, but we see the efficacy and probably yeah. 
If I would decide in the clinical practice, I would use a TKIO combination also in the non-clear cell. You yeah. know that the Sunny Forecast trial, which which finished recruitment, so it's a phase three trial of yeah. TKIO. So that, that will be very cell, interesting yeah. to see. Um, uh, we do know from other single arm studies that have been performed that chromophobes are not very likely to react. But let's see what this trial will show. I think we also had PubMed. So PubMed the, yeah. um, that was a study that uh, investigated several TKIs, including savolitinib, uh, cabozantinib, and sunitinib. And cabozantinib actually had a better progression-free survival, but not overall survival. And that's also where we changed the recommendations, uh, that cabozantinib should now be the preferred uh, therapy over sunitinib for um, at least papillary arses. In the non-clear cell yeah. setting, if you choose exactly. a monotherapy, yeah. yes. Exactly. What is the place of cytoreductive surgery in metastasectomy in the new landscape? Yeah, you're addressing the holy grail yeah, of a <laughs> urologic surgeon, your cytoreductive yeah. nephrectomy. So actually, there has been a debate like yeah. two years, three years ongoing. Uh, I think you're one of the front runners of the short time trial and mm. you have cared a lot for the Carmina data and analysis. Yeah. What, what do you think? So I, my opinion um, is that Currently, I mean, your, your knee-jerk reflex is that when your systemic therapy changes, that the old evidence disappears and that we would need new yeah. randomized phase three trials. I think from a scientific point of view, there's no discussion about that. And these trials are currently uh, ongoing. Uh, for me, it's interesting that none of these trials investigates an upfront cytoreductive nephrectomy arm anymore. So I think it has sunk into the community that when patients require systemic therapy, and this is better for the patients. And that's also what we are seeing from the pivotal trials. So they, um, for example, Checkmate 90R included up to 30% uh, patients with the primary tumor in place. And we do see that their progression-free survival and overall survival subgroup analysis is better than the ones who were treated with sunitinib. So you might argue when sunitinib was the preferred treatment for primary metastatic disease without cytoreductive nephrectomy or having a deferred upon good response, then we should continue with this paradigm. That's what we're currently doing. That's also what we recommend in the guidelines. Start with the systemic therapy. And if you do see good responses, and some patients have complete responses at metastatic sites, then consider secondary or deferred cytoreductive nephrectomy. Yeah, well, all these trials have been the, the sunitinib as a monotherapy. And, but I think what we also learned is of the TKIO combination that the primary tumor is also responding. So we observe objective response rate in the primary tumor. I mean, we know that it's in the metastasis. We know from the TKI monotherapy it was in the metastasis, but to a lesser extent in the primary tumor. And yeah. This is definitely enhanced and the response rates are higher also in the primary tumor. They're up to 30, 33%, yeah. 30%, and that's, that's quite high. And it corresponds to the, to the outcome of the patients and also the uh, response at metastatic sites. And I think one of the messages of the cytoreductive nephrectomy trials is the cytoreductive nephrectomy era is not over, so mm. it's not finished. Yeah, We all know in the poorest situation, that's definitely no good option, yeah. but we know it's, an, it's a part, it's a piece of the puzzle. And we know that the oncologists are getting more and more our friends, yeah? and we discuss that with them when to do the cytoreductive mm. nephrectomy. It's in, in part, it's incorporating the whole treatment of the yeah. patient, so... It's not just sequencing, starting with surgery, then doing the medical treatment, just starting with the medical treatment, doing the surgery, and discuss it between mm. the friends. Yeah, I think it's also important to mention that there's still a, a subgroup. With, with, once did an audit at the, uh, at the tertiary referral center in London, 
It's about 20% of the patients who present with primary metastatic disease that have so little uh, volume of the metastatic disease that they actually are better off with an upfront cytoductive nephrectomy because they, they can then either undergo metastasectomy or focal therapy of the metastasis or just simply observation until progression. And the gain for the patients is basically a therapy-free interval which improves the quality of life. Yeah, and I think you learned from your trial, from the yeah. short-term trial, that the deferred nephrectomy, you start the systemic therapy first, is you know, delivers you a clear result for the patient because, I mean, there are patients, you observe yeah. patients in your trial who progressed under systemic therapy. Exactly. And I think we all know that these patients, if they would have undergone cytoreductive nephrectomy first, would definitely have no advantage of the surgery. Yeah, I agree. And um, there's nothing more poor than doing, you know, surgery in a situation which is not responding to the best therapy you have. What about observation in the metastatic setting? Mm, I think that I, um, well, first of all, I, that is a concept that is being done. We, we know that from a retrospective uh, series that has recently been published from the United States, about 32% uh, of uh, patients are being observed for their low-volume metastatic sites. And... Um, The, the data we have from kidney cancer do not suggest, it's different in melanoma, but the data we have do not suggest that the earlier you start with your systemic therapy, the better the outcome is for the patient. So I think currently we're still in that space that it would be prudent to only start systemic therapy at the time point that you do have progressive disease or a higher volume or an intermediate risk score or other factors that suggest that it might be better to control the disease. But if that's not present, then it's easy to actually uh, continue to observe. What is the place of SBRT in advanced RCC? Interesting. It's a, it's a very interesting um, question. I think the guideline group did a systematic review years mm -hmm. ago. So it's definitely a topic to be picked up. And we also know that the radiation techniques have evolved. Um, so it's uh, of importance to have a very close look on this technique and the outcome in the individual patient. I think we learned that um, immunocellular carcinoma is sensitive to radiotherapy at a certain time, at a certain point. It's a question of the dosage. Mm -hmm. um, we all know that we use it in our clinical practice for the palliative care yeah. situation, pain, um, fractures after, let's say, metastasectomy in the bone um, as a, an adjuvant treatment mm. part. Um, so the future, especially if it's in combination with immunotherapy, but there are question marks, I think, still. Yes, there are. I mean, there, first of all, there are studies ongoing um, that currently investigate systemic therapy in combination with SBRT. But I, from a clinical perspective, I increasingly uh, use that in my practice. And um, the reason why is because If you look at metastasectomy, um, we also had a debate here at the EAU uh, in, in the plenary session about it, is um, very often what you get by metastasectomy is we all aim for cure, but the reality is that patients gain a disease-free interval. And you, do, you never know how long or short this disease-free interval would be. And for example, if you have a patient with a retroperitoneal lymph node recurrence, you know that the surgery is not necessarily minor. And there was a publication once in European Urology that showed that the uh, clavian dindo grade 3 to 4 event after metastasectomy is 25%. So it's not little. And I think having a treatment option that um, results in control of the disease with a non-interventional uh, technique is actually quite attractive. 
And I think even without studies, I, I think we should favor SBRT a bit more. The, the problem is from a guideline perspective is that um, there's very little evidence from randomized trials. So it's, it's basically, I think we need to redo yeah. um, a systematic review it's, in this area. Because you have mainly retrospective data, yeah. case series, yeah. but it's missing the prospective value yeah. of the data. That yeah. what's, is, well, it's a prerequisite which mm. to give a good recommendation. Thank you both for joining today. To our listeners, you can subscribe to EAU Podcast to hear more EAU guidelines updates. EAU Podcast can be found wherever you get your podcasts.